Well, just a welcome to those who are joining us on Catch Up. Uh, if you're listening on an Android device or an Apple device, uh, we welcome you. We um, we know that most of our listeners uh, use uh, those forms, uh, those uh, those media rather than say Sermon Audio website, which is interesting. So, if it's on Spotify or something else, we we welcome you and. Uh, a particular shout out today <laughs> to the listeners in uh, Germany. Hi to you. Uh, also Ethiopia. So uh, there's a few English speakers down there. So I hope uh, I hope I'm clear enough uh, for you. And also hello to the couple of listeners in Mongolia as well. So uh, the internet allows us to reach just the ones and the twos, but people all over the globe. And it is a great blessing for which we thank God. So welcome to you all. And um, what we're going to do now, we've had a, a Bible reading earlier. So we're going to our main Bible reading, if you like, the one on which the sermon's based, and that's in the book of Mark. And so we're going to turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. And we're going to begin at verse 37. Mark 15 then and verse 37. It goes as follows. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood over against them saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, the less, and of Joses, and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. And now when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honourable counsellor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came, and went in boldly unto Pilate, and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marvelled if he were already dead, and calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen, and took him down, and wrapped him in the linen, and laid him in a sepulchre, which was hewn out of a rock, and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulchre. And Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of Joses, beheld where he was laid. Well, we considered last time the wondrous and, well, maybe terrifying cry Jesus made from the cross. He raised his voice to ask his heavenly father why he'd abandoned him. As a man, Jesus was overcome with the weight of God's hatred for the sin he'd taken on himself. As God in the flesh, he knew it would soon be at an end and the great victory of the atonement would be complete. So we now reach that moment in or around the year AD 30, at three o'clock in the afternoon, on the 8th of April, the Messiah, the Son of God, 
Son of Man, the Saviour of the world, died. He likely died on Thursday afternoon and rose again early on Sunday morning. It tells us in verse 37 that he gave up the ghost. I think although we, 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 we know what it means, the word ghost is, is not is not great, is it, in our day and age to, to be using in association with Jesus. Um, so I sometimes say Holy Ghost, don't I? But uh, I, I try not to. I think it would be good to read this, uh, gave up the ghost, as he breathed his last because it's... That's effectively what it means. It's the same as what we do. When we die, there's always one final intake of breath. And then when that goes out, it's all over then. The effect that all this had on the, the centurion was very telling. He'd, he'd seen many other people die by crucifixion. But this was obviously different. Jesus didn't get weaker over uh, the space of you know, hours or even days like you'd expect. His exit was accompanied by a great shout to announce his purpose on the cross was finished. And so it speaks to us of a control, a control by him over when he died. And it seems that this soldier, a Gentile, received a revelation of, uh, from God at that moment about who Jesus was. So the man who'd organised the crucifixion became the first convert after it. That's the way God works. He's amazing. He also, he also, the centurion, had this contrast between, well, an apparently ignoble death with the amazing events which took place at the same time. Now, Mark records just one of these events, the tearing of the veil in the temple. And... So it's, it's this event which is the theme I'd like to follow up uh, in a few moments. Well, just to mention Joseph, he enters the story. It says he waited for the kingdom of God. Now remember that the, the introduction of God's kingdom refers to the, the unfolding of God's purposes in Christ. And Joseph was indeed witnessing the gradual revelation of the kingdom. He went to Pilate to ask if he could take Jesus' body down and bury it. And it shows his boldness. And if you think about it, associating yourself with a potentially subversive group uh, could have consequences. He could have been arrested had Pilate wanted to clamp down on the whole thing. And consider too that... He was part of the Jewish elite, the Sanhedrin, and so the other members would eventually find out what, what he's done. And so we'd maybe get into trouble with them too. So it was a case of holy boldness. A boldness that all believers should have. And bravery wasn't really a normal attitude of Joseph's. It seems he it seems that this unfair trial um, and that horrible death of his master it gave him the strength to face Pilate in this way. If you read later on in John's Gospel, 
the the equivalent account you'll see why joseph hadn't been prominent he, he was a disciple of jesus but he, he kept it secret because he was worried about what the other jews would would do and it, it did get me thinking about how christians can spend years of their christian lives fearful about the consequences of what if what if they served christ more passionately and then and for many of them they reach this point where they no longer care and they go out and for many almost that's the day when their true christian service begins when they lose that pride and self-interest and throw themselves into serving jesus taking up the cross properly so friends <laughs> if you believers now don't waste your lives in a lackluster christian um christian experience i pray that you would be bold that god would give you strength to really serve and to really take up your cross pilate expected it to take longer for jesus to die he was surprised i do wonder why though why would Pilate be surprised you think about all the the, the, the savage um, beatings that went on um, you know there's, there's loss of blood I'm sure there would have been many who would die soon after being put up on the cross now of course the I suppose the, the original intention the ideal way for someone to die if you like from, the, from their perspective would be to be to be beaten then put on the cross and then last for several days and be in agony that's what they wanted they wanted them to suffer for the things they'd done and bearing in mind then people could be on a cross for days or, or just like five minutes uh, it made me think well why was Pilate surprised that Jesus was so soon dead and I could only conclude that Pilate had been really worried by the whole thing he, he knew Jesus was innocent and I, 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 I do think that perhaps Pilate was, was getting regular updates on how Jesus was. Um, and so, so if he knew the condition of Jesus, you know, every sort of, every sort of 15 minutes or something, then I could see now why he'd be surprised. Because one minute someone would say, you know, Jesus is alive and well. Uh, well, he's, you know, he's obviously in pain, but he's... He's alive. He's probably got another couple of days left in him, and then the next thing Pilate hears is he's dead. All of a sudden, so it was unexpected. That's 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 the point. When criminals were crucified and they they died, they would sometimes leave them on the cross, and the the birds would would get at them. Uh, sometimes they'd just take them out and dump the bodies in open ground, and the animals would get them. And so again, Pilate's concession to Joseph, to, to Joseph uh, suggests to us that there was something different about this. I do wonder whether Pilate did feel uh, guilty about what he'd done. And he was trying to make amends because he'd taken part, hadn't he, in this false uh, prosecution. So the wrapping of the body uh, in a linen shroud was pretty common. Joseph did have this problem with time being against him. Now, on that date, sunset was around 
20 past 7 in the evening and so after Jesus died you know Joseph had to arrange this meet up with this hearing with Pilate he then had to go back make arrangements um, you know get get the body down wrap it take it to the tomb in, in, in about you know four hours and if he still cared about the 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 regulations about the sabbath then he couldn't allow that that uh, process to run on into the sabbath in other words after sunset after sunset is when the sabbath day begins and he he, he couldn't allow that so we're, we're assuming that he got help from his own servants and in fact john the apostle john in his account adds a useful fact that nicodemus helped him Nicodemus came along with some uh, spices and so on so they all uh, took the body to a garden nearby and uh, in that garden in the rock there was they carved out this this tomb and it belonged to Joseph himself and it hadn't been used and so he, he Jesus was taken and put on a shelf a bench uh, inside there and the, the tomb, as you probably know, the tombs were sealed with large circular stones, like like uh, sort of uh, like large millstones, you know, um, maybe uh, maybe a, a meter or a yard uh, in diameter. And so they, we know they were extremely heavy. And so what they would do is, there would be a they would create a, a slope, a slight incline, and the the circular stone then when the time came would just be pushed and it would roll down and gravity would do the work and then it would stop and seal the tomb stop the robbers and the animals getting in but as you can imagine then rolling the stone away would take several hefty men to get that uh, out the way so well just to explain just to explain this title then this title the veil of Christ's flesh I want I want to talk in a time we have about Christ's flesh which the scriptures tell us is a sort of veil a veil now we all know what a veil is it's a piece of clothing used to cover a, a, a face uh, or, or sometimes a woman's hair if we were doing a word study on veils in the Bible well we'd see them used in ways we'd expect so for example in Genesis 24, you, you might recall that Rebecca, when she was about to meet her Isaac, her future husband, in her modesty, and to show her godly subjection to Isaac, she wraps a veil around her face. Then in we in Genesis, which we haven't reached yet in chapter 38, we see Tamar. She covers herself with a veil. She, that's to hide her identity from Judah. She pretends to be a prostitute in a, in a successful ploy, actually, to become Judah's wife. And then we also see, for example, in Isaiah 25, a veil there is used symbolically now to describe the, the spiritual darkness which covers the earth. So th those aren't things we're looking at today in particular, but th those examples show us that veils hide something that's that's the point of it so as always i want to take you along a short track of 
study which leads to Jesus Christ and to do this we're going to look at three examples uh, mentions of veils uh, in the Bible in order to cast light on the significance of the temple veil being torn in the, at the time of Jesus' death which we read together so the first example then is the veil that Moses had on his face so you might remember after Moses met with God on, on, on Mount Sinai his face shone brightly his face shone and he veiled his face when speaking to the people so we're going to have a read of that episode and it's in Exodus chapter 34 <clears throat> and it's starting at verse 29 Exodus 34 beginning to read at verse 29 and it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses hand when he came down from the mount that Moses he wished not he knew not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him and when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses behold the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come nigh him and Moses called unto them and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him and Moses talked with them and afterward all the children of Israel came nigh and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai and until Moses had done speaking with them he put a veil on his face but when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him he took the veil off until he came out and he came out and he spake to the children of Israel that which was commanded and the children of Israel saw the face of Moses that the skin of Moses face shone and Moses put the veil upon his face again and he and until he went in to speak with him the Lord so you see how Moses enjoyed such a close communion with God that his physical appearance changed now we expect that Moses would have been affected in his own soul and, and blessed and so on but his face shining there was a reason for God doing this to his servant it wasn't merely to show Moses had been in God's presence his shining face was as it were the very glory of God reflected in him and the people were not too comfortable with Moses' new look. So Moses wrapped a veil around his face to mask the brightness. But what does it represent? Well, we are here, as is so often the case, uh, we're helped in our understanding of this Old Testament passage by the clearer revelation of the New Testament. So I'm going to turn to Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. So we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and we're starting at verse 12 seeing then that we have such hope we use great plainness of speech and not as Moses which put a veil over his face that the children of God could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished but their minds were blinded for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament which veil is done away in Christ but even unto this day when Moses is read 
the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it, their heart, shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot in that 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 short reading. So, let's um, let's look at that uh, one piece at a time. Firstly, then, Moses's shining face represents the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the the end. It talks about the the end of that which was abolished is the gospel. And it's, it's this gospel which is the real full revelation of God's grace. It's the gospel which is the power of God that saves his people from their sins. And it's the light of the gospel which shines into the hearts of his elect children and gives them repentance and faith. Secondly, Moses' veil represents the blindness of the Israel of the Hebrew people. Their minds were blinded, it says the text. The law of God is holy and just, but it has no power to save. We know Jesus is the end of the law, that he is the fulfilment of the law. So the only way anyone can be saved is by faith in Christ. And anyone thinks they can contribute to their salvation by keeping the Ten Commandments uh, or, or they think they they think their salvation is in peril if they fail to maintain a respectable life. They don't really understand the gospel. They're likely not even a child of God. You either trust in Christ for everything, or you have nothing. The third thing from that reading is, even after Moses, the hearts of Israel after the flesh remain veiled. So even today, wherever the Old Testament is read. Without reference to Christ and the gospel, the people are in utter darkness. Those who read it, study it, even reverence it, are hopelessly wasting their time. And even though all the ceremonial law in our Bibles pointed to Christ, he's spoken of there only in like types and shadows. He's hinted that. If you're listening today as a child of God, take a moment to think how great the father's love for you is you have the knowledge of uh, god in christ reconciling you to himself you have this entire revelation of god in your hand and in it you have the gospel message spelt out plainly and it was by this clear message of salvation by christ the very words in this book that you uh, that God saved you. So look back, look back in wonder at the darkened understanding of the people gathered around Moses and thank God that you are who you are today. And that by God's grace alone. Our second point here is, our second example is the the temple veil. The temple veil. Well, you probably know that the temple was preceded by the tabernacle. But both of them were constructed according to very specific instructions by God. And at the heart of both of those places was this, was this um, 
this holy place. Then there was this thick veil or curtain, and behind that was the holy of holies. The and this the most holy place was where God promised He would meet the people. Or to, to be more specific, to meet the people's representative, the high priest. And he was only allowed in once a year to make an atonement for the sins of the people. But the first place, this, this, this larger holy place, was open to all the priests. And we can see that it represents the entire church of God. It says here in Revelation 1 and 6 that God hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. So we are all priests and it's the whole world of God's elect who are symbolised by this holy place. But there existed this separation, a veil, keeping the priests from the fuller manifestation of God's glory. And truly, even even this veil was made with the coming Saviour in view. Just take a look, just take a look at how God ordered it, it be it made. It says in Exodus twenty six verse thirty one, and thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen of cunning work. With cherubim shall it be made. And I'm sure there's the significance in the the the, the cherubims uh, on there. But apart from that, we have um, we have the colours, you know. Just we have heavenly blue, we have blood red, and the purple of kings. This this veil was 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 thick and heavy, and some 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 claim it was this temple veil was was as much as uh, six inches thick. So you can imagine how heavy it was, and. Anyone but the high priest venturing through it into the Holy of Holies would die. But we're considering today how all these things shine a spotlight on the person and work of our Saviour. So we'll we'll move on to the, the subject uh, which um, my title indicated. It is the veil of the incarnation, the veil of Christ's flesh. Let's read from Hebrews. You'll see why I'm making these connections with veils. And we're going to be in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 and we're starting from verse 19. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. It says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he had consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Okay, through the veil that is his flesh. So, you know that Christ was God manifest in the flesh, right? So God but in a body. And the verse tells us there that that flesh was in fact some sort of veil. So it might be difficult to picture that because we're used to veils being things to, you know, go over people's faces. But let's think about this. In the second chapter of Colossians, it says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Right? But hang on a minute. Do you remember Moses asked God? He said, I'm begging you, show me your glory. And God said, 
No man can see me and live. So the Lord, as it were, went past Moses and allowed him to see just a glimpse of his glory. The fullness of the Godhead is in Jesus, but it's impossible for us to be allowed to see it in its bare, unveiled brightness. The You think about Jesus' origins, his life, his death. They were marked by humility. You see, therefore, how his glory was veiled. We've mentioned this before. In the temple, the high priest would come. Uh, he'd come into the uh, the inner place armed with the blood of a young goat. So he'd go through the veil to make an offering for the sins of God's people. He'd go through into the Holy of Holies. And this whole thing foreshadowed exactly what Christ did for us, his followers. He went through the veil, but through the veil of flesh. And having done so, he entered into the most holy place, heaven itself, presenting himself as the offering so if you can if you can visualize those two things side by side you'll see the connection and it tells us in Hebrews 6 verse 19 uh, talking of the hope we have which hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast and which entereth into that within the veil so let's just try and describe this again Jesus came from heaven he went through the veil of a human body and then he ascended to God's right hand the place of absolute equality to intercede for us I'd like to just mention a few of the reasons why Christ adorned himself with human nature um, this body which his father had prepared for him to dwell in Okay, so here's the first thing. He was manifest in the flesh so that he could suffer and die. Our God is eternal, therefore he cannot cease to exist. Only in the mysterious union of the God and man together in Jesus could make this possible. And we're reminded in the second chapter of Hebrews um, that it was through death that he destroyed him that had the power of death that is the devil so it was only in the flesh that he could suffer and die second reason is he was manifest in the flesh so blood could be shed now God is a spirit and cannot shed blood obviously now blood is the symbol of violence being done to a body and God requires it in order to remit sin and so only Christ in the flesh could shed blood and therefore free us from the penalty of sin the third thing is he was manifest in the flesh so he could be our great high priest the the hebrews high priest was always taken from among men and so men can appreciate much more uh, a, a great high priest coming from among them as jesus did 
The fourth point is that he was manifest in the flesh so he could keep the law. God's law was given for men and to keep every one of the moral rules and every one of the ceremonial duties and rituals, it was necessary for Jesus to come as a man. Fifthly, uh, he was manifest in the flesh so he could be our mediator. It's a great comfort for us, isn't it, to know that the one interceding for us in heaven uh, was once as we were. And so in doing this, in doing this really loving act, he was made eminently suitable as our representative at God's right hand. The sixth point is that he was manifest in the flesh so that he could be an example of good works. So just when we just when we find ourselves in awe of this man who did such good and showed such compassion and mercy, the word of God tells us that he did so many good works, it's as if all the books in the world couldn't contain couldn't fit them in. There was there were so many. It's a figure of speech, of course, but there was so much Jesus did that wasn't recorded for us. But in his, in his incarnation, he, he gave us a record of doing good, second to none, uh, one that he urges you and I to copy. The seventh reason Jesus was manifest in the flesh, it's so men could see something of the consequences of sin. Although Jesus was acutely battered within his soul by God himself, the visible extent of his suffering at the hands of men was apparent to all. And so had the Lord of glory not dwelt among us, we, we could not have appreciated the seriousness of, of sin as we do. And finally, he was manifest in the flesh so he could enter into our sufferings. This is one of the most prominent reasons given to us for the Incarnation, but it's not vital to salvation, of course. But it's so important to the child of God to, to, to hear about it because, you know, it's it's understanding that uh, Jesus, our Saviour, pities us as we're tempted. And it's, it's just a great comfort for us. It says in Hebrews 4, doesn't it, in 5, verse 15, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched, with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now you shouldn't imagine that, please don't imagine that since Christ was sinless, that he didn't experience temptation like we do. He, he couldn't just sit back and say, come on Satan, do your worst, do your worst world, do your worst flesh. Day in, day out, hour by hour, he was attacked with temptation. It tells us that our, it tells us our Savior was um, he was tempted in all points, in all ways, just like us. So, for example, you know, Satan that we know of, Satan tempted him to covet. Uh, the world tempted him, didn't they? Last week we saw they tempted him to abandon Calvary, and the flesh tempted him to. In Gethsemane, the flesh tempted them to reject reject the, the cup of his father's wrath and, and much, much more. Yet praise his holy name, he was without sin. And as the holy, 
harmless, undefiled Lamb of God. He was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The veil of Christ's flesh. You'll no doubt be aware of that there were other things going on which accompanied Jesus' death. You'll read elsewhere there was an earthquake. Rocks were split open. Graves were opened. When Jesus was resurrected, people came out of these graves and walked around. (laughs) Uh, The only event recorded in Mark's Gospel was this tearing of the temple veil. That thick curtain was just torn in two. It was torn from the top all the way to the bottom. There were two curtains in in the temple, but I'm talking about the the inner one. I I think it was the inner one. And that means that at the exact time that this man Jesus died, the old partition, that which kept the people from the most holy place, that which symbolised the mist of spiritual darkness, that which represented the gospel being clouded by the law, that was destroyed And then that, of course, carries on this anti-temple theme of Mark. Uh, It's yet another indication of the coming destruction of the Jewish temple religion being superseded by the free grace religion of Christ Jesus. I'll finish with this, this old Advent hymn. This Advent hymn says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God bless you all. Amen. Well, I want to just thank you all for for tuning in today, and I hope that has been um, of some use. It was, it was. I felt it was difficult to try to express how Christ uh, in his flesh was, how his flesh was described as a veil. So I'm hoping that's been made clear. And if anyone, if anyone feels they need to maybe have it explained a, a bit more. I shall certainly endeavour to do that should you should you contact me. Well, some of you I'll see on Wednesday at our Zoom meeting and the rest of you, uh, you, uh, God willing, shall hear from me uh, this same time uh, next uh, week. So until then, God bless you richly.